Hello, I'm Jake Lloyd and welcome to How to Build Community, a podcast and radio show brought to you by Aruka Network. In 2018, the Thomas Reuters Foundation compiled a list of the most dangerous countries in the world in which to be a woman. And at the very top of that list was India. Some of the most common threats to women were listed as sexual violence, human trafficking, slavery, acid attacks, female genital mutilation and child marriage. Helen Morgan is a mental health nurse and counsellor from New Zealand, but she spent the last four years travelling through rural northern India with a medical organisation there called the Emanuel Health Association or EHA. And Helen joined EHA to train community health workers in rural areas on mental health and basic counselling skills. But her work very soon became a bit more specific than that, as she helped community workers and others to think much more about gender violence. And I'm pleased to say, soon after Helen returned from her four years in India, she sat down and told me about her experiences, and how the simple act of listening was helping to create healthier gender relationships. It's the men who have been listened to that have realised the error of their ways as far as the domestic violence and the alcohol use and abuses. And normally on this show we celebrate local people leading a local project, but Helen is not local to India. So we also discussed how an outsider should behave when they go into a community with a desire to help. One of my colleagues from a few years back, she used to use the term naive inquirer. And I think it's one of the most valuable things I've ever been taught. So that's this episode, India, Gender and the Naive Inquirer. But just before we get into the interview, first up a very quick reminder of who we are at Aruka Network and why we interview people like Helen. At Aruka Network, we believe that every community is full of potential and we're a global network of local people who are working to unlock it. You can find out more about how we work and our clusters of local people in communities across Africa and Asia by visiting arukanetwork.org and Aruka is spelt A-R-U-K-A-H and we also have a membership scheme which is an opportunity for you to support our work but also for us to support you. Some of our member benefits include training videos, expert Q&As, a mentoring scheme, 15% off our training courses, and an opportunity to promote your work. So just visit arukanetwork.org. But let's get into this conversation with Helen. And I started out by asking her, what was it like when she arrived in northern India? When I arrived, I... I didn't know anybody. Um, nobody seemed to know what to do with me. <laughs> they gave me somewhere to sit. And um, there was a, a mental health team at the hospital, a, a community mental health team. They worked out at Saharanpur, which is a very, poor, very, very poor area in um, in northern Uttar Pradesh. And I, I sort of did a little bit with them. I went out with the psychiatrist, went out once a fortnight out to do clinics. And she would see 60 people at a, at a clinic for 50 or 60 people in a day. And we used to travel out there and we'd sit in a courtyard, actually, with the cattle. And, um, and the patients would come 
Um, but so I, I, I sort of helped out with the clinic there, did a little bit of training with that team, um, and really just started preparing material because I, I didn't have anything prepared. I didn't have any idea of what anybody wanted really. Um, so I would just sort of ran by the seat of my pants. Um, at times I helped out with the psychiatrist in her clinic over at the hospital. So the first year was very tough. And, and I've heard from people who have worked overseas and, and done work overseas that it's almost always the way you have to create your own sort of job, really. That's Helen describing her arrival in the country. I then asked her to describe the communities and the area in which she worked in Uttarakhand and Uttar Pradesh. All of our teams worked out in the rural areas. So um, they were farming, very, very poor farmers. So that's sort of a bit of a picture. And no mental health. There's, there was nothing other than the hospital as a, as a centre of care that, of course, people wouldn't understand mental illness, so they never took anyone to, to the hospital, um, even though most of those hospitals had a psychiatrist there, um, unless they had the community teams to, to actually teach the population that there's such a thing as mental illness and that, you know, if you went to the hospital, you can get some help. Um, yeah, they they didn't know. They were left in ignorance. So, yeah, the, hosp- the, the EHA focuses mainly on the areas where there's poverty and ignorance, and they fill in the gaps at the where the government, Indian government, is still not able to fill at the moment, health in health wise anyway. So there's a little bit about health and mental health in that region. Then she began to tell me how tough life can be for women. But she suggested that the reason for this is that life is tough for men too. It's the culture entraps the men into this culture of being, um, well, he, he, he's in charge of the family. And his responsibilities are, are just overwhelming. He, he's, he's, he's only considered to be a man if you're strong, if you don't cry. And little boys are told right from the minute they're literally, they take their first step, don't cry. You're just being a girl, don't cry. So right from that very, very early age, they're taught to suppress their feelings. Um, and act like a man. They have to be tough. They have to fight. They have to fight. You know, if, if somebody's um, hurting them or doing something, they have to fight back. Um, they have to be the sole breadwinner for the family. There's no such thing as allowing your wife to go and get work or, or to earn money. It's your responsibility. It's your responsibility to make all the big decisions. Um, it's, it, it's It just goes on and on and on. And men, of course, are treated by their mothers, and particularly male children. Male children are treated like little princes in the family. They they get better fed, better meals, and research has shown that they certainly get the better food. The girls, weight-wise, the girls lag behind all the way. So the boy child is very precious, but at the same time, there's that huge pressure once he becomes an adult to to be the the provider and to make all the major decisions. And that's a really hard place to be. 
It's very hard. And, of course, and then the pressure from that, of course, if, you, if you talk to the men, which I did numerous times, and they said, I drink alcohol to relax, otherwise I can't relax. I can't relax. I've got all these responsibilities. So so they use, you know, sort of using those substances. And, of course, as soon as they use the substances, then the domestic violence starts as well. But then there's the other side of the coin where, where girls in India, particularly in the more traditional um, rural areas, girls are nothing. They're just a bit of a waste of space, really. They're treated very badly, and by law they have rights, but within the families they have no rights at all. And society's very, very harsh over there. Um, Once a girl is married, and usually it's an arranged marriage, if the husband's really violent or or cruel or or, or it's it's really the, the circumstances are really bad, the girl is not allowed to go home. Her parents won't accept her; they'll just send her back. So it's a it's a pretty pretty tough environment. And and the teams that I worked with, they were actually working to undo a lot of that, and they were doing some fab, absolutely fantastic things. So Helen was part of a team that was training community workers and health workers on mental health, but this soon changed its focus slightly to think about gender and alcohol the team leaders there started asking me to go over and beyond sort of the counseling and uh, um, mental health stuff and start working particularly with addiction alcohol um, because alcohol um, abuse is is very big and of course a major cause of, of domestic violence so both of them worked out there, but the, the, the in the poorer e- rural areas where I was, the amount of alcohol in its homebrew, homebrew stuff, it's horrible, horrible, um, really high alcohol content, um, which is very damaging to, to the person physically, but more so it's, it's damaging for the family um, and bringing about lots of domestic violence. So the two topics came out. So the first one I did, I think, was the um, alcohol abuse. And the staff actually, they, they, just, they just really soaked it up. They really soaked up the information and took it out into the field. Um, when I went back, I was told, I was showing all these pictures of families who, who were who were just living a totally different life because of because of the the, the counselling they were able to do just really basic basic stuff, but teaching them about you know what alcohol does, um, how they can perhaps you know if they're supported, how the men can stop drinking alcohol, um, and they took it a step further than than just the counselling side of it. What they had in the villages, um, our teams were setting up support groups sort of like they were like senior groups of of people chosen by village leaders to be in the groups and they would monitor anything that was going on in the village and if there was domestic violence going on those people would intervene so there was a whole cycle it was very difficult it's quite a complex thing because the all the support workers that I was training they were actually from the villages where they were working. 
So they knew exactly what was happening in the village. And um, and they just had a finger on the pulse, so they knew the people really well, and I think they probably had more of an impact. So um, I just felt, initially, I just felt it was far too difficult a subject to teach untrained people or people who, who you know, with very minimal education. I, I just didn't know how they could possibly succeed in doing it, but succeed they did and continue to do so. So what exactly did her work involve? That was my next question. The gender stuff started with teaching. The first thing I did was teach just common, everyday sexuality, you know, about our physical body, how it works, how it goes, and just just sexuality on its own. That was unheard of. To, to, and I know the government schools, most of the, particularly in the cities, they do have it as a subject, but apparently from the feedback I've had, most teachers say you just read the chapter, but they don't actually teach the subject. So I started with that, and um, and then of course I learned, of course, as I was doing more research for these different topics, and then we came into the gender issues, and lots of people focus on on what we do with the, to to support the woman, you know, what what um, how we can do that. So we started from those places. And when we came to supporting the woman, um, particularly over in Roxole, I found the team over there, the team leader was just amazing. She had set up a wonderful network of structure there. And they, they were in touch with the police, with the court system. They had the whole thing there. So the team members could counsel women who, who had experiencing domestic violence. And then they could... Um, if they, that was happening and they could ask the woman if they wanted to go ahead and, and perhaps do something about it, then they could involve the police and the court official. There's a particular court official in every area that's been appointed for um, for women who have been, or, or anyone who's who's suffering from domestic abuse, even if it's if it's elderly women, um, and they, they often do get abused as well within a household. So. So there was a system in place. There were, you know, I could see, first of all, I was really concerned. I felt if I taught about domestic violence and how, how you're going to support a woman in a society who, who do not, they do not condone separation. They absolutely do not condone separation. If a wife separated or walked away from her husband or she's been divorced or widowed, even widowed, She's totally ostracised by that community and she's not given any sort of support. It's not like here, you know, like in the West. It's nothing, nothing like that. So so they can become very isolated. Very, I mean, it's, it's just an impossible situation. So the cultural side of it needs to be understood, but also we need to, ha- they needed to organise and um, Dr. Vandener over there had organised a whole system, a whole thread of assistance that could be taken right through by, by these women. So Helen was training community workers and I asked her how it works. What does she do and what were some of her success stories? So you're sort of starting from scratch. You're teaching them about mental illness. What causes mental illness is, of course, domestic violence. Often, often it's domestic violence. Maybe maybe there's genetic issues as well. 
So you've got the whole cycle, and so you're starting with that. Then as they understood mental illness a little bit, then I was teaching them how to communicate with the people they're working with, how to, to counsel them, how to be non-judgmental, how, how to listen and to hear what was really going on for them, um, and, and to support people by listening, by just listening to them and allowing people to find their own solutions. So it's, it's, very, it's very complex, but it, it is about being respectful of each other. And, of course, because I came from a different culture, I'd be attempting to introduce the concept of treating each other with respect, whether you're a man or a woman or whether it's even your children and I would send the team home each night because I would be there for, for at least a week and I'd be training every day for six days. And each night they would have to go home and practice some of those listening skills with their family and the way they speak to their children. Now, in, in, I, uh, uh, India reminds me of New Zealand 60 years ago when, when we used to hit our kids. And, and so there's a lot of um, physical violence over there towards the children and a lot of verbal stuff towards the children. So it was actually like doing lots of demonstrations and lots of um, role plays in the classroom. And then I'd send them home to do it at home. And then the next morning when they arrived back, I'll say, well, how did that go? You know, what happened when, when you did this? And I was getting comments like, oh, my children, my children were so much better behaved when I spoke to them respectfully. And when I asked them, you know, asked them their opinion and when I allowed them to talk to me, their behaviour just changed. And one man in particular I'll never forget, and he, he, he has just gone from strength to strength in the four years. Um, he said, it's changed my life. Learning all these things has changed my life. It's changed my family life. He said, I have a wonderful relationship with my wife now. We get on really well. We discuss everything together. We make our decisions together. And I saw that as a huge breakthrough because he was a villager. He was a very poor village man who lived in a village he was a f absolutely fantastic role model for his village. He was the mental health representative for his village. So he was, and he 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 was the one in particular who managed to get quite a few men off alcohol. So you think of the impact that he had just from that tiny bit of training. It's very exciting. It's very exciting. So it, I mean, that's in a little, just a touch of of how it works. Because I, I did come in touch with the people, you know, the local people themselves and went out to visit and did demonstrations for the staff. But essentially, I was working with the support workers and they were doing the hard work. Now, we talked a lot about listening in the previous episode with Pierce Godwin from the Listen First project. And it's obviously become a theme again. So I asked Helen, why is listening so important? I know how powerful it is. It's about somebody being heard. Now, particularly in India, women are never heard. 
No one wants to hear what their opinion is or, or what they think. And the men, um, the men, because, because they're the boss, you know, and because they're where they are, they don't, they don't, they wouldn't dare talk about how they felt because that's very unmanly to talk about your burdens. You wouldn't talk to your friends about it. That would be terribly embarrassing and it would be just, it, it would be really insulting to, to actually, nobody, nobody reveals, reveals what's really going on underneath. Just even talking to the team members, they would, they'd be telling me, you know, that there's just not that, camaraderie that we share your real close problems and what's happening with a special friend it's just not done everything has to be kept very superficial because you're the boss so when somebody is prepared to actually listen and genuinely listen and and of course also along with the confidentiality which is essential absolutely essential is really powerful stuff and this is how this man learnt how to start talking with his wife and reading on the research as well, the research projects, and there's some fabulous research going on in India and wonderful projects. And it's the men who have been listened to that have realised the error of their ways as far as the domestic violence and the alcohol use and abuses. Because they've been brought up to be violent towards their wives. That's what their father did, their grandfather did. It, it, it's part of their their whole life cycle. So, But when they can start talking about it and then they can start see, as they start talking about how lonely they are, how, 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 how heavily burdened they are, and then they've got somebody who's actually prepared to, to educate them about you know, how, how would it be if you could talk with your wife? You know, if you could share some of these burdens with your wife. Huh? You see how you can get that shift? Be, but it's only when you stop to listen and you hear the burden, hear the pain, and then as they're talking about it, then they can perhaps come into this awareness, well, look, I've got this big burden. No wonder I get so angry. You know, no wonder. It, 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 it's something wonderful about being able to listen and really listen because when you're listening, you are actually, you're, you're, you're putting in something. Tell me a little bit more about that. What happened then? What did you do that time? You know, how was it helpful? You know, what do you think you could do that would, be, would make it a bit easier for yourself? That's what's called active listening and it's really powerful stuff. I also wanted to know from Helen, is there sometimes an advantage to being an outsider in a community? I felt there was, in as much as, I mean, everything had to be done through an interpreter, which really was very challenging, extremely challenging at times. But it's like when you're sort of in, in a particular place, this is what you've always known, you've never known anything any different. And you can't see the wood for the trees because you're right in the middle of it. But an outsider coming in, as long as you're open and open to the cultural nuances and all of the cultural points and, and open and open to that, you can actually see with a different eye. 
that that was the, the the feeling I had that it was a bit of an advantage for me. There was also this huge respect people had. So they were willing to have a try. Even the men who didn't think much of women and you know, you know of women's opinion especially. But because I was an outsider, I think, it helped to sort of um give me a little bit of something that so the men were willing to listen. I don't know how to put it into words, but that's what I actually felt when I was there. That, um, and I was always respected. I then asked Helen what advice she would have for others in terms of being an outsider in a community and listening well. One of my colleagues from a few years back, she used to use the term naive inquirer. And I think it's one of the most valuable things I've ever been taught as far as listening goes is wanting to find out, being, you know, I don't really understand what's happening here. Please tell me a little bit more. You know, why does that happen? And, I mean, that happens so often, all the time. I mean, I used to travel heaps and heaps, even on the local buses, and, and often there was somebody who wanted to practice their English, so they'd come and chat to me, or they'd, as soon as I sat down, they'd, they'd want to talk to me. So it was actually getting them to talk and explain you know you could learn so many things just by being but have to be non-judgmental it's i mean there's lots of things in indian culture that that seems horrible on on the surface but when you go deeper there's a deeper reason why that happens you know i didn't go to impose my beliefs all I wanted to do was to somehow share my knowledge, share what I've learned through my lifetime and through my work experience and share it in a beneficial way. Actually, I was brought to tears so many times and I said, oh, oh, what, what's been the advantage of the training you've had? You know, what, what's been the advantage of this week's training? And people would say the most incredible things. I was one place I was working, um, which wasn't in the community; it was in in the woman's home. And the staff there, they would I was teaching them how to communicate with all these mentally ill women in a so-called woman's refuge for destitute women. And and of course, the staff had no idea when they first started working there what they were meant to do. And that was my role and with this great help from the translator we used to go every week without fail I hardly missed a week and teach them about how to treat each other you know just that gentleness the kindness the respectfulness the non-judgmental stuff and trying to teach them what those mentally ill women had been through give them some sort of idea of what it was like to hear those voices hammering away at their heads or what it would have been like to get all the abuse they would have had on the street. And so that they become much gentler and treated the woman in such a different way. And I used to do the same thing as get them to go home and practice with their families. And they all said, it's changed our life. Now, how, how good is that? It's changed my life entirely. It's changed our family life. Not, not just the people they're working with, but it's actually changed the way they are at home and how they treat the family. 
And I think, you know, that that's what I set out. Well, I didn't set out to do, but that's part of what happened. And um, and that was only because I listened and I heard these stories and, yeah. So Helen obviously saw a lot of change in the communities in which she worked, but I also wanted to ask her what wider changes she observed in Indian society during her time there. When I first arrived, it, you know, it was hardly ever talked about, and if you read a newspaper, or I never watched much TV, but particularly reading newspapers, it was hardly even reported. But prior to leaving, there were some very, very good educational um, TV programmes the newspaper, it didn't just report on, on the ter- absolutely terrible sexual violence crimes. It was just appalling. But every week there'd be some particular aspect. There was even one whole page on sexual violence towards boys, which is never, ever, ever talked about in India, never. It's almost like it doesn't it doesn't happen, but of course it does, and it's very widespread. So that in itself is huge. The schools are now teaching sexuality. There's far more emphasis in the in the newspaper to talking and of course with the, with all the research that I was reading about was having more and more groups for boys and the boys particularly in the schools being taught about um, gender equality. You never got that before. You saw one of the biggest Hindu temples down south, the judge ruled that they had to allow women into the temple and they've never been allowed into the temple. And he said, but it's a public place. So they couldn't stop women from going in. So he, 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 I mean, that's unheard of. When I first went to India, that would never happen. And that was just in four years. And of course, um, I suppose the influence of the West is pretty big um, with TV and access to internet and stuff. So people are getting, and there's a good sides and bad sides of that, but there's certainly, there's been a big shift. The other, the very important one was with the police. The police attitude is, on the whole, is um, as they would ignore domestic violence like the police used to in New Zealand when I was a child or even when I was in my early 20s. Men could get away with all sorts as far as domestic violence goes. But I noticed all the different stories where the police had been started taking, you know, sort of actually charging men for their sexual abuse. And I spoke to a woman who, in fact, she was being counselled. Her husband had died. And um, she was kicked out by the in-laws. Um, they didn't want her. She had three little girls, so they didn't want her or the girls. And then her brother-in-law started coming over, getting drunk and coming over and attempting to um, abuse her. And she actually called the police for help, and the police were absolutely wonderful. Now, that never used to happen. That never used to happen because there's so much corruption over there. It's unbelievable. But So that's a big, big one. And there was lots and lots of stories about the police, about the female police officers as well, female officers having equal authority and equal rights within the police force itself. And they were doing special things for the female police officers to try and promote that. I just thought it was quite amazing, and, and, and it was all happening quite quickly. But it, yes, I, I just just talking to people, that, that there's, there's been quite a marked shift 
around sexuality, of course, which was never ever talked about once upon a time, but it's starting to happen, particularly in the cities, in the rural areas, it's a bit slower to catch up. So that concludes our interview with Helen Morgan, a mental health nurse and counsellor from New Zealand, describing her four years in northern rural India. And that's it for this month. If you have any comments or feedback or ideas for the show, then I would love to hear from you. If you're listening on radio, then you can email me directly at jake at arukanetwork.org. If you're listening to this on the SoundCloud page, then you can leave a